Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter audiocast. I am your host, Dr. M, and today we will be looking at volume 11, issues number 39 and 41, which happen to correspond to coronavirus updates number 44 and 45. I'm glad you're here along with me, and let's get started. So, as always, before we begin reading and discussing, let's look at the obligatory disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. All right, so let's get started here. The fourth wave appears to have turned to North Carolina and in most of the country. The reports are out there that breakthrough cases are roughly one per 5,000 vaccinated persons coming from a study by Leonard D. et al. 2021. If you've had two doses of the mRNA vaccine, you have a very, very, very small risk of a significant hospitalization and almost no chance of death from the Delta variant based on statistics overall. Being unvaccinated now is the greatest risk factor for a negative outcome. Advancing age and comorbid disease add layers of risk on top of your vaccination status. Latest numbers can always be seen at the Google website or CDC links provided in the newsletter. Most states are seeing an uptick in vaccinations as Delta has changed some people's minds. And we are continuing to see that the Lambda, Gamma, and Mu variants are not yet an issue and likely will not be as United States, in the United States as Delta is outcompeting them. As it stands today, as the writing of issue number uh, 40, uh, coronavirus update number 44, the death toll is at 660,000 with 41 million known cases. This is a significant uptick in deaths over the previous two-week cycle and hopefully will slow down with the case volume dropping again. There's still no change in the knowledge that more than 80% of the deaths are skewed towards the elderly and 94% of the deaths are occurring in people with comorbid health disease. So at this point, vaccination appears to be a, a unbelievably beneficial situation with 99.99 plus percent chance of survival once you've had two doses of the vaccines for mRNA, um, even with the Delta variant, especially if you take care of yourself. Why take the extra risk? Not quite sure. Two questions that were asked in the past, and now um, we have some answers. Are you sharing what you learn in this audio cast with friends and family? 98.3% said yes. Are you content with my science heavy take home point style for COVID? And 98.3% said yes. That is great news as it reinforces within me that these newsletters are time well spent for me to produce and for your consumption. I love giving away this knowledge and I'm grateful for you, the audience. Okay, let's get into the meat of it. Coronavirus update 44. My current recommendations remain. One, get vaccinated and take the guesswork out of this as vaccination dramatically reduces death and hospitalization risk. Two, follow the links in the introduction above in the newsletter for an integrative approach to remaining immune solvent to reduce all-cause infectious mortality regardless of the disease of infection. Three, live every day like it was your last by honoring your mission to be a great human while you love people around you and while you love yourself. 
As you will see this week, the data is often directionally the same, but can go in the opposite direction, making recommendations, making a chore. I am falling back on a few generalized truisms. For 99% of us, two paths exist that make sense. If you have had prior infection, then one vaccine booster is likely a perfect place to settle on based on the data, or if you have no prior COVID history of infection, then two doses of an mRNA vaccine for risk reduction, even if you are healthy, to prevent the rare healthy person bad outcome. If you have advanced age or a comorbid disease, boosters may and are likely to be useful in the future. All right, quick hits. Number one, there's a new variant of interest that is emerging around the globe. The new variant is called C.1.2 and has been detected in South Africa and a few other places. We'll be watching this player as it has more mutations than the average variant that could confer increased transmissibility and vaccine breakthrough. On paper, this appears to be likely, however, in vivo, reality is often very different as the variant will have to compete with Delta in order to gain a foothold. Stay tuned. That comes from Sheepers, S-C-H-E-E-P-E-R-S at all 2021. Number two, more on breakthrough infections. Quote, SARS-CoV-2 naive vaccinees had a 13.1-fold increased risk for a breakthrough infection with the Delta variant compared to those previously infected. When the first event, infection or vaccination occurred during January and February of 2021, the increased risk was significant for symptomatic disease as well. When allowing the infection to occur at any time before vaccination from March 2020 to February 2021, Evidence of waning natural immunity was demonstrated through SARS-CoV-2 naive vaccinees, had a six-fold increased risk for breakthrough infection and a seven-fold increased risk for symptomatic disease. SARS-CoV-2 naive vaccinees were also at greater risk for COVID-19-related hospitalizations compared to those that were previously infected. That comes from Gazette et al. 2021. We also know that cases are worse when a person has low circulating antibodies against SARS-2, which happens particularly with advancing age. In my mind, having a comorbid disease and or advanced age puts you at higher category for breakthrough infections and disease risk. See more with the next piece. Number three, some research really puts a monkey wrench into data consolidation and thought formulation. But alas, this is the world of science and it's great, folks. In a paper just published in Nature, Dr. McDade and colleagues report that, quote, we document lower levels of inhibition of spike ACE2 binding for emerging variants of concern and significant reductions in anti-RBD IgG and surrogate neutralization of all variants three months after a first mRNA vaccine dose. Consistent with a recent report, we find stronger vaccine responses following prior PCR-positive SARS-CoV-2 infection. Importantly, these stronger responses were limited to participants with PCR-confirmed cases of COVID-19 and were not seen among those who did not experience symptoms or were seronegative. A large proportion of SARS-CoV-2 infections are asymptomatic, and our results indicate that seropositivity alone is not sufficient to predict a robust antibody response to vaccination. Recent data suggests that lower responses to vaccination are associated with increased risk of breakthrough infection. Among vaccinated healthcare workers in Israel monitored from January to April 2021. Neutralizing antibody and anti-spike IgG titers were significantly lower in workers with breakthrough infections and compared with matched uninfected controls. The B1.1.7 variant was detected in 85% of breakthrough infections. While antibody neutralization of emerging variants may be reduced in comparison with the ancestral strain of SARS-CoV-2, T-cell reactivity following vaccination or natural infection has been shown to be similar across strains and may reduce the severity of COVID-19 if a breakthrough infection occurs. The decline in antibody levels over three months post-infection 
excuse me, post-vaccination and the relatively reduced neutralization of variants of concern point to urgent need to identify correlates of clinical protection to inform the timing of and indications for booster vaccination, end quote. That comes from McDade at all 2021. So let me break that down. If you had a COVID positive test in the past, but had little to no symptoms, your immune response for long-term antibody generation and duration uh, perspective is not great long-term. So the risk of reinfection is higher by a significant margin. This is just like the typical circulating common cold coronaviral strains. However, individually, this means that your immune system in general handles the virus well as it did the first time and likely will the second time. The kicker here remains for those with advanced age and comorbidity. The Delta variant and future variants may change this narrative. Therefore, yet again, I would recommend vaccination to mitigate risk. Number four. A Johns Hopkins study notes, quote, our results demonstrated the durability of spike antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 up to 10 months after natural infection. The CDC acknowledges that prior SARS-CoV-2 infection reduces the risk of reinfection for a minimum 90-day period. Our data demonstrate durability of IgG titers well beyond this period and extend recently published intervals of six to eight months, end quote. Egbert et al. 2021. As with the above study, the antibody response and durability must be significantly tied to severity of an infection and also individual host immune responses, making a generalization about risk very hard to ferret out. Number five, boots on the ground. No increased incidence of MIS, multi-inflammatory syndrome, or deaths in children noted by my friends in Charlotte, Charlottesville, Raleigh, or Philadelphia. There are many more cases in children, which is expected with a more infectious viral variant. Adult disease continues to be mostly in unvaccinated individuals with a comorbidity or vaccinated individuals over 65 years of age with a comorbid disease. The theme of inflammation and age continues to be true. Six, in a well-written opinion piece from New York Times, we see logical questions around our failing message around policy moving forward. Quote, another hard question that is most likely also causing confusion and disagreement is how we define severe disease in children. Children can get COVID, but their death and hospitalization rates are much lower than for adults. The inflammatory syndrome, MISC, is rare. Long COVID has gained wide attention, but recent studies have shown that rates are low among children and not dissimilar to effects caused by other viral illnesses. We're not being cavalier by raising these points. Consider that in Britain, the government doesn't require masks for children in schools, and it is not clear it will advise kids to get vaccinated either. Britain has experts, as we do, and they are looking at the same scientific data that we are. They most assuredly care about their children's health the same way we do, and yet they have come to a different policy decision. Schools were prioritized over other activities, and the risk of transmission without masks were considered acceptable. Alan J. et al., 2021. If I were in charge of the national, national message, which I never will be, mind you, I would give one paramount directive. Kids must be in person, in person, school, no matter what, save for one caveat. If a hospital system gets overwhelmed or appears to be getting there, the hospital system must notify the state, which then notifies schools to prepare for a two-week pause in in-person learning to help decrease these events. This is assuming that there is widespread COVID activity in said schools, as we are seeing now. In no way can we ever return to full, poor-quality virtual learning. I would also recommend that if a two-week pause does occur, that the school adds two weeks of learning tacked on to the end of the semester to complete all learning in person and offer remedial education for those that are slipping behind. 
Education must be the top on our priority list at this point, in my opinion. Education is the staple for a healthy society to thrive and maintain mental solvency. I am exceedingly sad for all the COVID deaths and long-term symptoms. However, we have an effective vaccine that significantly reduces these risks. Thus, we cannot sacrifice the children's mental health and welfare anymore based on a choice that causes self-harm. There is now another big issue, censorship. I and all of my colleagues have just received an email that may change my ability to give an opinion on these topics, which I find to be anti-American, anti-First Amendment, and anti-medicine. While I agree wholeheartedly that vaccines are effective and safe, I am 100% in favor of free speech. Opinions and discourse are the only truths in medicine. We have seen so many times how medicine has been wrong about many topics. Alas, these are different times, and I hope that the powers that be revert back to common sense and allow discourse. See below for the letter. It is a really difficult time for all of us in medicine as the person or people that get to decide what is misinformation may not align with truth in the long run, as we have learned with the lab leak theory and many other realities like lockdowns. This is very disconcerting and not great for all of us. A pandemic and medicine in general are very fluid systems that lend poorly to hard truths. We must let the science speak. I will not read the letter. You can visit SalisburyPediatrics.com and look up this newsletter and it's there for your reading. There is no new information on boosters. Number, excuse me, this is quick hits number seven. There is no new information on boosters. I like this seven reason list why, for why boosters are unlikely to be necessary. Monica Gandhi is an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco. And a well-read author published this list in Mashup MD. Reason number one, memory B cells are produced by vaccines and natural infection. Reason number two, memory B cells can produce neutralizing antibodies if they see infection again decades later. Reason number three, vaccines or natural infection trigger strong memory T cell immunity. Reason number four, T cell immunity following vaccinations for other infections is long lasting. Reason number five, T cell immunity to related coronaviruses that cause severe disease is long lasting. Reason number six, T cell responses from vaccination and natural infection with the ancestral strain of COVID-19 are robust against variants. And reason number seven, coronaviruses don't mutate quickly like influenza, which requires an annual booster shot. Okay, I could not agree with her anymore. We need to be thinking these issues through logically and without emotion. I will need to see robust safety data and a reason to boost before I will go down this road. So far, I've seen neither. This calculus may be different for those over 65 of age and those with comorbid disease. That is the group having breakthrough cases resulting in rare hospitalizations and even more rare deaths. We also have to keep the rational perspective that once you have had natural disease or death, the negative outcome curve plummets back to earth. Perspective is key when making any decisions. For more on the science of immunity over time, read excuse me, reread number 43, that's COVID issue number 43, or listen to the audio cast in I, Apple iPodcasts. Okay, quick hits number eight. From the UK, a study notes that if you were vaccinated against SARS-2 versus not, you will have decreased long-term, greater than 28-day symptoms if you subsequently acquire natural infection. That comes from Antonelli et al. 2021. This is the first study that I have seen showing a differential response between immunized and those not immunized against SARS-2 with regard to long-term symptoms post-infection. The remainder of the analysis reinforced many other studies showing significantly reduced all-cause issues related to being in the vaccinated cohort. Number nine, the effectiveness of masks has been looked at again, this time in a very interesting village study in Bangladesh in an unvaccinated population. They found that there was an 11% risk reduction in contracting and or spreading SARS-2. Peoples L. et al. 2021. 
This is a modest risk reduction at best, but is still a reduction. If we layer different levels of protection, risk will reduce even further. Masks, vaccines, immune solvent lifestyle choices like healthy nutrition, adequate sleep, moderate exercise all stack up to benefit the average person. Number 10, risk of a third shot or booster. We have little to no data so far. In Stat News, there is a speculative article discussing some of those risks. Joseph A. et al. 2021 can be found on the newsletter. A reader question. I hope you will be able to see this email. I wasn't sure how else to reach out to you. Thank you very much for your newsletter. I always look forward to receiving it. The question. I had a question about something you wrote. Can you elaborate on what you wrote below? How would I know if I had a poor vaccine response? Would a poor response be that there were no side effects or was having bad side effects a poor response? Everyone in my family that got the mRNA vaccines had zero effects other than slight headaches the next day. Our friends, after the second dose, were in bed for the next three days and extremely tired and felt like they had the flu. I assumed a robust reaction was a good thing, but in reading what you wrote, I assumed that no reaction was a good thing. Like our bodies weren't in a state of inflammation. We get good sleep and eat well, so... Well, you tolerated it well. Could that be the case? My response, there has been no rhyme or reason behind an individual post-vaccine response. To my knowledge, there is no correlation with, between post-vaccine symptoms and antibody response. At one point, I thought that there was, but that has not panned out. To know if you had a good response can be tested in two ways, assessing antibody titers to the nucleocapsid and to the spike protein. A higher response indicates a better response and longer immunity. A second way would be to look at T and B cell responses. However, this is only done in the research setting. The data from Israel has shown that over time, antibody responses wane over a four to eight month period, and that puts the individual at risk for reinfection. However, the risk is directly related to metabolic dysfunction on many fronts, poor response to vaccination, worse response to the virus once infected, worse ability to resolve the inflammation post-infection, worse immune polarity and higher mortality. All of that being said, if you are vaccinated, your risk of death is still incredibly small despite reinfection. The only way to semi-guarantee a high quality outcome is to reverse the risk factors for a bad outcome, as we have discussed for many, many months. All right, moving on to issue 41, which corresponds to coronavirus update number 45 and the date of September 27th, 2021. The fourth wave appears to be over in North Carolina. If you had two doses of the mRNA vaccine, you still have a very, very small risk of a significant hospitalization and almost no chance of death from the Delta variant based on statistics overall. Okay. With wave four being significantly over in our clinic, our po test positivity rate has plummeted from the 30% range to less than 5% and slightly bounced back up to around 10%, but it's hovering below 10% most of the time now. We had a four-week run of high-volume COVID incidents with minimal, moderate, to almost no severe disease in kids. This is a blessing as the Delta variant was a question mark for a little while there. The best answer to slowing down the pandemic remains vaccination, as we are now living in a world where hospitals have been overwhelmed, leaving ICU beds unavailable. This is not just a COVID unvaccinated person problem, as I have had some people tell me. The ICUs are meant for all patients as the need arises. Thus, if an ICU is filled with COVID unvaccinated patients, then others may die of a non-COVID related disease, which is a mass mess of grand proportions. 
please reconsider your stance on vaccination if you remain on the fence. I have now seen too many unvaccinated parents leave my patients missing a parent. This is tragic and sad. Dr. Rhonda Patrick and Dr. Raja Sheholt have a great YouTube video that can be found with a newsletter link on vaccine and side effects for anyone who is still in need of more data to inform their choice. One point that they make that is very explicit and akin to risk stratification discussions that I have had in the past year is as follows. 584,000 people over 50 years of age have died from COVID, most of which had some comorbid disease. 5,000 verified deaths were attributed to COVID vaccine via the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is a voluntary vaccine reporting system. That is roughly a 120x more deaths risk from COVID than vaccine, assuming all reported deaths were truly from the vaccine. A number could be significantly higher with uh, the risk from the virus versus the vaccine. This is just straight math. You can see that the worst risk category is definitely getting natural infection. For individuals aged 40 to 49, there were 20,000 COVID deaths and 200 vaccine reported deaths. It's a 100x difference. From 18 to 30, there were 10,000 COVID deaths and 200 vaccine reported deaths. It's a 50x difference. In medicine, we use drugs every day with small but real risk. Vaccines are no different. We are making calculated risks every day with every decision. The Pfizer vaccine study in children, five to 11 years of age, has preliminary top-line evidence for safety and immunogenicity as reported this week. The FDA has not reviewed the data. The company is reporting similar results for safety and immunogenicity compared to the 16 to 25-year-old cohort. We cannot run the same analysis as above as we do not have VARES data for this group yet. According to, the, uh, excuse me, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, to date, there have been 480 deaths in children by state-based data. This data is for children aged 0 to 14 to 19 years, based on which state is reporting. That is a sad but small number overall compared to all other age demographics. More to come. As it stands today, the United States has had 43 million known cases and 688,000 deaths. This number is greater now than the flu pandemic of 1918. 675,000 Americans were said to have died during the pandemic of 1918 to 1919 timeframe with the flu. For me, this is a gross reflection on the abject lack of health across the United States for a large swath of society. The, more the poor metabolic health of our citizens is the direct cause of our universally worse world comparable outcome statistics. I suspect that if the 1918 flu came back today, we would see more deaths overall based on our health parameters. All right, moving on to the quick hits. One, vaccination may offer a reduction in in-house spread from the vaccinated to the remainder of the household. Quote, cases of COVID-19 were less common among household members of vaccinated healthcare workers during the period beginning 14 days after the first dose than during the unvaccinated period before the first dose. Event rate per 100 person years, 9.40 before the first dose and 5.93 beginning 14 days after the first dose. After the healthcare worker's second dose, the rate in-house members was low, still 2.98 cases per 100 person years, end quote. Vaccination was associated with a reduction in both the number of cases and the number of COVID-19-related hospitalizations in healthcare workers between the unvaccinated period and the period beginning 14 days after the first dose, shot at all 2021. 
This is not surprising as many vaccinated persons will not bring home the virus nor propagate its movement within a house. Number two, quote, of 105,446 unique pregnancies, 13,160 spontaneous abortions and 92,286 ongoing pregnancies were identified. Overall, 7.8% of women received one or more BNT162B2, which is the Pfizer vaccine. 6% received one or more of the mRNA1273, the Moderna vaccine, and 0.5% received a Janssen vaccine during the pregnancy and before 20 weeks gestation. The proportion of women aged 35 to 49 with spontaneous abortions was higher, 38.7%, than with ongoing pregnancies, 22.3%. A COVID-19 vaccine was received within 28 days prior to an index date among 8% of ongoing pregnancy periods versus 8.6% of spontaneous abortions. Spontaneous abortions did not have an increased odds of exposure to a COVID-19 vaccination in the prior 28 days compared with ongoing pregnancies. Results were consistent for mRNA-1273 and BNT-1620B2 and by gestational age group, Carbanda et al. 2021. This is a large Another large multi-center trial showing no risk of negative post-vaccine neonatal outcomes. Number three, how to supercharge your immunity. In a recent study in MedRxIV, Dr. Bieniash and colleagues have noted a robust immune response in natural infected individuals who were subsequently vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine. Quote, strikingly, however, plasma from individuals who had been infected and subsequently received mRNA vaccination neutralized this highly resistant SARS-CoV-2 polymutant and also neutralized diverse SARS-CoV-viruses. Thus, optimally elicited human polyclonal antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 should be resilient to substantial future SARS-CoV-2 variation and may confer protection against future SARS-CoV-virus pandemics. Schmidt et al. 2021. This study was industry-funded, making the conclusions biased. However, the science appears solid and in line with other studies looking at similar responses. The thrust of the study is that natural disease followed by a dose of Pfizer's mRNA vaccine allows the human immune system to have highly effective immunity against variants, including a polymutant with significant resistance genes. The take-home point is, based on this study, Prior natural infection plus a vaccine dose provides highly effective immunity against current variants and likely against the future as well. This may be a great path forward for many individuals willing to get a single dose of mRNA vaccine post-natural disease. Number four, multi-inflammatory syndrome data. Incidence is exceedingly rare. 316 persons per 1 million SARS-CoV-2 infections in children under 21 years of age developed multi-inflammatory syndrome. Incidence was higher among Black, Hispanic, or Latino and Asian Pacific Islander persons compared with white people, and in younger persons compared with older persons, painted all 2021. For the clinician readers, Ed Barron's group at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia looked at 20 patients, nine with severe COVID-19, five with minimal COVID-19, and six with MIS. Five cytokines, gamma interferon, interleukin 10, 6, 8, and tumor necrosis factor alpha contributed to the analysis. Tumor necrosis factor alpha and IL-10 discriminated between patients with MISC and severe COVID-19. The presence of BIRS cells on blood smears as well as CTs differentiated between patients with severe COVID-19 and those with MISC, Diorio et al. 2020. Five, boots on the ground. 
No incidence increase of MIS or deaths in children noted by my friends in Charlotte, Charlottesville, Raleigh, and Philadelphia. This remains the same as a few weeks ago. The theme of inflammation and age continues true. Number six, Paul Nurse has written a brilliant piece that should be read by all in the journal Nature. I'm going to quote from it. Rather often, I go to a research talk and I feel drowned in data. Some speakers seem to think that they must unleash a tsunami of data if they are to be taken seriously. The framing is neglected, along with why the data has been collected, what hypotheses are being tested, what ideas are emerging. Researchers seem reluctant to come to biological conclusions or present new ideas. The same occurs in written publications. It is if speculation about what the data might mean and the discussion of ideas are not quite proper. I have a different view. Description and data collection are necessary but insufficient. Ideas, even tentative ones, are also needed along with the recognition that ideas will change as facts and arguments accumulate. Wow. Why a researcher's holding back on ideas, excuse me, why are researchers holding back on ideas? Perhaps they are worried about proposing an idea that turns out to be wrong because that might damage their chances of getting promotion or funding. But as Charles Darwin put it, false facts are highly injurious to the progress of science, for they often endure long. But false views, if supported by some evidence, do little harm, for everyone takes a salutary pleasure in proving their falseness. And when this is done, one path towards error is closed and the road to truth is often at the same time opened. To wit, it's important to get the facts right. But new ideas are useful as long as they are based on reasonable evidence and are amenable to correction. So Paul Nurse, at uh, it was not at all, Paul Nurse 2021. So for me, this commentary leads back into last week's commentary that I discussed in this audio cast on physician and provider censorship. Thought and discourse remain the key to successful scientific advancement. The onus should be upon the messages to be honest and truthful to the best of each person's knowledge. However, blanket censorship statements to all physicians and providers of care and or threats of licensure removal are completely unhelpful in any reasonable society. Number seven, science heavy this one is. Quote, Regulatory T-cells, otherwise called T-regs, are responsible for restraining excessive inflammation, a hallmark of COVID-19. We identified a striking phenotype in T-regs from patients with severe disease, as well as an interesting role for interleukin-6 and 18. An increased suppressive profile, including increased T-reg proportions combined with the expression of pro-inflammatory mediators, distinguished severe patients and persisted in some of those recovered. This phenotype is a notable similarity to the, that found in tumor-infiltrating Tregs, which are generally associated with poor prognosis and suggests both a detrimental role for those with COVID-19 as well as potential explanation for some of the still largely unexplored complications associated with recovery, end quote. Galvan Pena et al. 2021. This is really interesting study insofar as it notes that T regulatory cells are overrepresented and often express a suppression state that turns down and antiviral killing cytokines. This is largely confusing as vitamin D along with vitamin A and commensal gut microbiota are involved in enhancing T reg activity system wide. There was a large body of evidence linking low vitamin D levels and worse outcomes post-SARS-CoV-2 infection, leading many people to increase vitamin D intake during the pandemic. However, this study is showing the exact opposite. Or maybe the truth is that at either extreme, 
Treg function is altered and immune-based viral killing capacity is hampered. We still have more questions than answers and we'll keep peeling the onion to find more layers of learned to be, learning to be understood. Number eight, FDA advisory panel votes against a third COVID vaccine for all. They target the older population over 65 years of age, as well as those with high-risk disease states that involve immune suppression. This makes complete sense as the vaccines are still working great for the prevention of hospitalization and death. Common sense prevails. However, the CDC and the Biden administration have changed their policy and offered now this vaccine booster for anyone in the front lines, which is a lot of people. So we shall see how this plays out. But again, follow the data as it's being presented. Number nine, interesting article on five countries eschewing restrictions in favor of a live with COVID strategy. The link is provided in the newsletter, as well as number 10, the risk of the booster shot, which we discussed already for stat news. Okay, moving on to section two. 23andMe has been working very hard behind the scenes in obtaining some solid genetic evidence behind COVID risk. In two studies published in MedRxiv, over the past year we see evidence based on over 1 million gene analyses that blood type, ethnicity, and metabolic risk factors are associated with a worse outcome. Blood group O is protective, while A, as discussed in other studies, may be deleterious for health. The mechanism behind this effect is still up for debate. Being of a minority group, especially African-American, carries a higher diversity severity burden above the increased risk based on socioeconomic risks and antecedent metabolic disease burden compared to Caucasian Hispanic populations. Further research needs to look at these data sets to identify cause and effect. Finally, they reaffirmed that metabolic diseases, obesity, and diabetes confer significant risk increases. The take-home from this data set is that identified risk factors for severe disease should be discussed with the at-risk groups to further encourage vaccination lifestyle alteration. Study number two looked at the genetic loci for smell and taste changes. Quote, we ran a trans-ethnic genome-wide association study comparing loss of smell and taste with no loss of smell and taste among those with a positive SARS-CoV-2 test result. We identified an association in the vicinity of UGT2A1 and UGT2A2 genes, which have been linked to olfactory function. These results may shed light on the biological mechanisms underlying COVID-19-related anosmia. This mechanistic hypothesis below, for those who are interested, can be found in the newsletter as it's uh, printed out there. The take-home is that over time, genetic analyses are and can shed light on risk and help to target populations who are in undesirable situations and could have undesirable outcomes from a particular disease. 23andMe is a private company with 10 million person genome database that is ripe for data mining based on risk. The future is here and is going to get stronger. Consider becoming an active member of the platform for genomic understanding. For full disclosure, though, I am an owner of this company's stock, so I believe in their technology, but I want to make sure everyone is aware of that while I made that recommendation. Okay, that is the end of coronavirus update number 30, excuse me, number 44 and 45. As always, I am your host, Dr. M., I hope you enjoyed today's audio cast and I look forward to seeing you next time. And as always, hug those kids.